Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Scott Lear, professor at Simon Fraser University on mental health, lifestyle strategies, and speaking out in order to help foster awareness and acceptance amongst those around you. Dr. Lear has been a professor for over 20 years looking at lifestyle, obesity, heart disease risk, because he is also at risk of heart disease, although we don't really go into that in our conversation. He's got a lot of information on his blog about it. Today, though, we talk more about Scott's own journey with depression and mental health, of which he's been very open about since being diagnosed um, a few years earlier. And this occurred after feeling down for no good reason, as he puts it. So we discuss the stigma that is attached to mental health diagnosis, which can prevent people from getting help earlier. And of course, talking about it. We talk about the strategies that he employed, both professional and personal, to help recover from it, but also how important it was for him to receive actual treatment, even though he was doing a lot of what is recommended that we do to help our mental health, like exercise and diet, etc. We also talk about those strategies for him and, and how that um, certainly helped him along the way. And finally, we talk about how his own experience has now sort of led him to be interested from a research perspective into the field of sort of mental health and lifestyle. So it's a really interesting and thought-provoking conversation, I think in part because it comes from that personal experience. And so Scott is able to put his own lens on it from a person sort of going through it, but also look at it from that sort of researcher perspective because he's such a wealth of information over things related to sort of health and lifestyle. So Dr. Scott Lear is a professor in the Faculty of the Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University and holds the Pfizer Heart and Stroke Foundation Chair in Cardiovascular Prevention Research at St. Paul's Hospital. He is also a member of the Division of Cardiology at Providence Healthcare. And over the past 20 years, he's been conducting research in the prevention and management of heart disease, focusing on supporting healthy lifestyles and improving access to timely health care. In addition to publishing over 160 research papers, his work has been featured in various media outlets, including the Vancouver Sun, The Conversation, the Heart and Stroke Foundation, City TV and Global News. Scott also has an active blog and regularly podcasts on issues pertaining to health, including heart health, mental health and so forth. And we've included links to both his professional profile at Simon Fraser University and his blog also. Before we crack on to this really thought-provoking conversation, just a reminder that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. So enjoy this conversation I have with Dr. Scott Lear. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Um, so Scott, thank you so much for taking time with me um, in your afternoon to chat about subjects that we're both really obviously quite passionate about, uh, mental health, physical activity, sedentary behavior. Uh, these are things which I see you tweet about and I've read your work and listen to your podcast. So um, I'm oh, really, great. really pleased to um, to have this opportunity. I'm really always interested in people's sort of origin story is not the right word, but how you sort of developed this interest in this field. Okay. Well, origin story sounds cool because it sounds like I'm a superhero. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I started getting interested in physical activity in the middle of high school. And uh, as, as I started getting into the end of high school, I thought that I'd like to get into medical research. And... Uh, I didn't have anything specific, but then in university, I started to get more and more interested in the heart, part, partly because it was just a personal interest. I'd studied kinesiology in university, and at that time, I was uh, focused on getting into medical school, and I tried once and didn't get in, so then I applied for graduate school which is what most people do to try and increase their odds of getting into med school. And I actually became quite happy with what I was doing. I was working with clinicians in cardiac rehabilitation. So that was really exciting for me regarding uh, physical activity, exercise, and lifestyle behaviors, how it can be used as a treatment for heart disease. At the same time, I was thinking to myself, well, what can we do to prevent this as well? And that's where the prevention and interest in getting people to be active. From a health point of view, it's you want to get people, whether it's healthy nutrition, proper sleep, taking their medications or physical activity, you want like ideally everybody to be doing this. And uh, I bring that up because it's in contrast to when I talk to people in the fitness industry, they say, well, you know, the people we see have no problem exercising. And that's because that's because they're volunteering. They're the ones coming to the fitness studio. They're the ones who are paying for your services. Whereas in health, it's usually the people that are actually the hardest to reach that might benefit the most from changing their health behaviors. Yeah, it's it's typically the case, isn't it? Like my research background is public health and nutrition and, and physical activity as well, although I'm a nutritionist sort of by trade was my background with physical education as well. But it's um, we often have people in our field have quite a skewed perception potentially without that broader um, look over at public health. We had a skewed perception of what people are interested in. Like, for example, I think, oh, I could think, oh, everyone's interested in um, eating a whole foods diet and trying to get seven hours sleep and knowing that yeah. devices, you know, like this, these things which we think should be common knowledge, actually, for the vast majority of people it's just not how they it's not this is not stuff that they're either been exposed to or have the opportunity to um to take up in their everyday life i think 
For sure. And if you don't have access to those healthy foods, or if you don't feel safe going for a walk in your neighborhood, these are going to be barriers that are beyond your control. So Scott, um, before we chat about your research in this field can can we have a chat about just your own um personal journey like i mentioned that obviously that you know there's a real strong link between uh physical activity and health and and mental health and i think people are much more aware of that now than than probably what they would have been in the past although maybe actually they're not and I just think that they are because these are the people that I talk to um but as I understand and you've written about your own sort of personal experience in this area are you happy to just have a bit of a chat about that yeah yeah for sure uh yeah so physical activity is uh I, I would say I was a late bloomer in terms of exercise. It wasn't until probably I was 15 or 16 that I started getting interested in tennis and then started running and doing triathlons at that time. I wasn't a a child who was put into soccer, football, hockey, or swimming at the age of five and did it for seven or 10 years. And you know, once you've done it at that age, you kind of always remember it. So I would say I was a late bloomer. And it's always been something for me that I would say I can count on or and as a and also be an anchor. So if, if whether I'm stressed or whatever else is going on in my life, I, I would still have that exercise. Some of my um, best workouts uh, would be when I'm got so much like adrenaline going from maybe lack of sleep from stress and then just going and working out and I'll be like, wow, I had a good workout there and feeling better. And it was in, let's see, it was in 2021 when I didn't self-diagnose myself as having depression. My family doctor did that. But looking back, and even then, I wasn't, I could tell I wasn't like feeling great. And I would just tell myself two things, which I think I overuse these mantras. One, it's okay to not be okay, but I was using that every single day. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's wasn't a wasn't beneficial and then i was naive or ignorant at the time thinking well it's just affecting me like yes i'm not feeling great but i'm not affecting anybody else but that's untrue you know if your people in your household are affected by that whether they can sense the tension or whether it's displayed in think behaviors or things you say and so looking back, and I liken it to even like heart disease and most diseases where by the time it's diagnosed, the disease process has already been ongoing for years or decades. Like when somebody has a heart attack, that's not the start of the disease. They probably started having that disease process 15, 20 years ago, per se. And it's just the heart attack for them is unfortunately the first symptoms that they've recognized. 
and the same thing with people who have mental illness and uh, trying to recognize that and then trying to understand if you can if if it's like quote all in your head and at the same time i would think to myself look i've got a great family got a house got a great job you know i should just suck it up and uh i i'm sure i don't um you know maybe i'm not really unhappy given yes. that yeah 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 and you're did it and I think this is a challenge that I, I imagine many people in your situation would have. There's no sort of overt reason for feeling the way that you feel. And I understand that. So it's just like, you know, like suck it up or, um, or you know, you're, you know, you're doing your hard workouts, you're feeling great in that moment or whatever, and surely this is, you can ride it out, I suppose, is, is something that I hear if, uh, a bit from, from others similar to you, actually. Yeah, and I would say, uh, as probably with a, a lot of people, the pandemic uh, probably just took it up a notch. My my um, favorite or my go-to mode for exercising and training is swimming. So for a long time, swimming pools were closed. Uh, when it got to early summer, I would put on my wetsuit and go swim at the beach for that summer. And so that was good. And then when the pool started open, they were restricted into how many people could go. Same with the fitness centers, you had to book. And that actually became a stressful process. Yes. So um, I usually did drop in. I would show half an hour early so I'd get a spot because um, usually within five minutes of being able to book online, that session was filled oh my goodness and you would have to like it was open during the work day so you'd have to make sure there is no work for you to do around that period because if you got a phone call you either decide oh i'm not going to take that work phone call book my swimming which kind of thinks drive my priorities straight yes or take the work phone call and then go to book and you've missed the session uh, and so something that uh, was a pleasure started to become stressful. So the I would say while I was still doing it religiously, and it was um, wasn't as I should say as great of a release or enjoyment as it was before. Yeah. And was it at that time that you decided to seek just another opinion on how you were feeling? Like how did that sort of come to the point where you're like, actually, I've really got to speak to someone about this? Yeah, that was, um, yeah, I don't know anybody who had a mental illness or had mental illness that had that kind of awareness. There's usually like some sort of either acute event or like with among whether the household or somebody uh, close to a person saying, look, this is just too much right 
something's got to change. And, yeah. and that would, was the case in, with me. And then it's like, oh, okay. Then I started to seek help. Yeah, yeah. And how long, Scott, did it take to actually begin to feel better? Um, so I like our, I imagine our pub, public health care systems are quite similar, both in their benefits and also in their problems and challenges. So uh, after seeing the family physician, I started looking into, uh, I, looking for something more intensive. So I looked at what the public healthcare system offered in, in terms of whether it's community care or inpatient care. Uh, I was hearing waits to see a psychiatrist could be up to a couple of years. Uh, the inpatient facilities that are available are seem to be only reserved for the worst of the worst because they have limited beds. And as one person referred to them as just treat them and street them. So you go in, uh, for most people, they might stay five to 10 days. Once they're believed to not be harmed to themselves or anybody else then the release, but there's no community care. So I'm privileged in my, position, work position I have, my employment, the salary that I have, that I looked into a private inpatient treatment facility. And unfortunately, uh, both my family physician and a friend who's clinical psychologist independently said, you know, if you can afford it, I recommend that to all my patients because you're not going to get help in the public healthcare system for something like this. Oh, amazing. So so that was the, the route that you took. What did that entail? So I was there for seven weeks. Most people are there six to eight weeks. And it um, this place was quite nice, but it was still because it was, as one person described it, it was a four-star prison. And part of that was because this was also during the pandemic. So th- we weren't we weren't allowed visitors, which they're allowed now. There were no offsite field trips, which was common before the pandemic and stuff. Uh, but it was still very valuable. Uh, this place was actually a former hotel, so the building and facilities were quite nice. They were on a few acres of land with forest surroundings so there were trails and so that i would usually go out for a walk on the trail every lunchtime and there was also a recreational therapist and a gym and i started playing a game which is quite popular in the us and canada called pickleball oh yeah it is yeah <laughs> And and uh, and I I still continued to to play that so that but I was in the gym exercising you know there was treatment there were lectures and stuff and uh, and it was very helpful for me I it was expensive but. Uh, most a lot of people spend more money on their cars, and I can't imagine their cars giving them as much life benefit as going through the program I went through. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Scott, did you have did you feel apprehensive about um, informing your work or or telling people close to you that you were doing this? I'm I'm, I'm always yeah, because there is a bit of or it appears you know there is still some stigma attached to you know yeah. uh, mental illness, I guess. <laughs> Oh, most definitely. So my work uh, was very supportive. And so I took a four-month medical leave. And and I was um, told quite a number of people before what was going, like close friends and close families. But I do know, like... Um, one of the sessions that we had in this inpatient facility was on what happens after. And some people were, were saying that they only told two people before they came in. So they're worried about how do they explain this eight-week disappearance from the face of the earth when they come back. Uh, others were unemployed and they're because of the they either took leave or quit their job and wondering how do I explain I've taken a year off because if I tell them I've had a mental illness you know they know that some people aren't going to get hired where if they said oh they were treated for cancer and it's in remission you know that's probably not going to play a big role into deciding whether to hire somebody or not with me I um, I found, and this is not for everybody, but I found, I guess, power in controlling my story instead of waiting for people to kind of fill in the blanks. And so I became very vocal about it. And I was aware of the stigma, but I was just like, you know what? If I go out there and just tell people what's happening or, you know, not disclosing too many personal things, but at least forming my story, then I get out ahead of that stigma. And there I'm transparent and going forward. But as I said, I might not have done that if I didn't have an employer that was supportive and understanding. Yeah, for sure. And I'm and you know someone in your position where you are a leader if you like in terms of, you know, if I think about your because you're a professor, right? So you you teach and you're you've got these sort of um younger people who are coming sort of coming through learning from you. Like I imagine that um not and also of course younger colleagues, I'm not suggesting you're old, but you know just as you know for someone like you to be transparent about that that that's the stuff that you need to help break down that stigma I in in my eyes yeah and I've been like a lot of times when I write about it or share it I'm doing it for me like I'm, I enjoy writing and so this is something that's helpful for me and if it helps with others but I've got lots of feedback um, when I've written commentaries in newspaper people reaching out to me uh, I dare to read the comment section sometimes, and they're all actually quite supportive. And I've realized that when one person opens up, it gives permission to others to open up as well. Uh, and I've got feedback from actually the people that you said, like, you know, it's not my purpose, but 
my dean had mentioned a few months ago that some of our junior colleagues were saying that they felt very um, supported by reading and me sharing what I was going through. And while academics can be a job that a lot of people say is a dream job, there's uh, a lot of not so dreaming or maybe nightmarish stuff that happen. Uh, since I'm in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, I teach on health. So I have, even before I went through and was diagnosed with depression, I was diagnosed with some heart condition and I would bring that into my class. And the students liked it. There's one thing having that, that knowledge and research yeah. credibility, but then it just as soon as you've like experienced it, then that your credibility goes up. And so students enjoyed like, I had a videotape of my exercise stress test that I did, and I show it to them in the in the class. And because I'm teaching, how do we diagnose heart disease? So I, I show them me running on the treadmill to exhaustion. And, yeah. 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 And Scott, did you, when you were in the facility, did, because obviously you're a knowledgeable guy in health and, and fitness and nutrition, you know, in the whole um, sort of space, were you surprised by any of the things that you learned in the facility that, that were going to be helpful for you? Yeah, there was definitely like one big surprise. I, so I'm in, I would say I'm in the health behaviors research expertise because getting people to be active I wouldn't say I'm an exercise physiologist like I understand exercise physiology but I'm not in a lab measuring people while they're doing strength training or fitness testing I'm trying to get people to be active trying to see how that behavior relates to health and so I knew about various behavioral therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy. But what I didn't know uh, is something called DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And and I didn't and I, I'm not saying that I didn't know it because this is some type of fringe thing. This is not. It's it's part of a clinical psychologist's uh, tools of behavioral therapy and that worked very well. It's it's based on, well, cognitive behavior therapy is the end goal because that works on changing your thoughts. Uh, dialectical behavior therapy recognizes that, that changing your thoughts is a long process. So it starts to look at changing your behavior because you can change your, still have your thoughts, but change your behavior. Yeah. And so that what worked very well for me, and and some of it. So for some examples, uh, simple examples of this is that you're in a heated argument, and when you're in a heated argument, you you're you're not you're seeing red. You're not thinking like, oh, I'll just use these be like behavioral therapies. There. This just says, okay, 
these are simple things that you can do like one remove yourself from the situation uh another is that works for people putting like an ice pack on the back of your neck and, and all of these these types of things are meant to not make the situation worse they're not me meant to change um your thoughts they're not meant to get you to a place where you can whatever win the argument or or start talk it's it's that you just don't want to make things worse you're you're in terms of your your emotional uh activation you're like an eight nine or ten out of ten so a lot of these more calming strategies of oh just sit down and do some mindfulness it's not going to happen it's so when you're like that it's about not making the situation worse and then there, there can be time either before or after to look at things for for example a lot of times when we get into those situations you can look backwards and see oh yeah okay you know this action or you know i i was mad when i came home or because you know something happened at work and then i was driving home somebody cut me off you know maybe um before you know i engaged with the household i go have 10 minutes of uh mindfulness so so that um and so some of these things it's like a commute cumulative like add on to each other and it's not necessarily the situation that you're in that's super intense that is the cause of it but these other things and then there's also uh, an aspect which uh, is called increasing your window of tolerance and realizing that stress is always going to happen and how are you going to how are you going to manage that and so things that you've talked about already like good quality sleep you know if you've had three five or six hours of sleep you know that person cutting you off whether they're in the right or wrong is probably maybe going to spark something a bit more than if you've had your full you're well re well rested uh, just like regular physical activity uh, and so those are uh and, and and if you if some people benefit from spending time uh, alone or doing self-care reading a book or or doing some meditation or, or yoga and for those people who are doing those things they can probably picture if they stop doing them how their day might be a bit they might be a bit more on edge yeah yeah for sure and it's a little bit like um, I'm thinking about exercise in that last example as well like I know I feel different if I whether I'm out for a run in the morning or I have a rest day for example it actually changes my whole how my body and my mind feel like I just feel slightly more on edge and um and see I think like I've got this yeah. pent-up energy that I need to expend um Scott, have you read Dr. Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive? No, no, I haven't. You know who I'm talking about, though? Yes, yes. I yeah, and so he talks in, in there a little bit. I don't know if it's the same thing, the dialecti dialectical behavioral therapy. Is that what you called it? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, he because he is is very transparent about his own sort of challenges with a work addiction and how he viewed himself. And part of his therapy was whenever he felt a, whenever he had because his major anger issue was actually to it at himself and his own behavior and he would treat himself quite poorly. So one of his techniques that his therapist got him to do was to um, speak to himself and he had to do a voice memo to her. Every time he had these thoughts of, oh, you're a loser or whatever, he had to um, uh, voice memo himself um, speaking kindly, speaking to himself like he was speaking to his son or his best friend or, you know, someone he really cared about. So over time, even though he was having these thoughts, the the idea of he was saying these other things out loud helped change his perspective on that situation, which is not which is similar but sort of different to to how you're describing it, but that whole being led by doing by an action rather than trying to necessarily change that thought pattern. Yeah, and and what you just described is something too that was part of what we discussed, and and uh, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people, getting caught in traffic was something that would raise my uh, emotional temperature, and so there's an aspect within this therapy of radical acceptance, you know. You're not going to be able to change the traffic. And it's trying to focus on how to change how you react. And and it's just like saying some of those thoughts in in your head um, or taking a posture. Part of it is even doing a half smile. When we smile, it actually uh, affects us physiologically in a positive way. And so some of the things that you mentioned that Peter Atiyah mentioned is is exactly that. And, And where are most awful critics to ourselves? Yeah. We treat ourselves so poorly that in no way would we ever treat somebody around us the same way. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. And I do a lot of work with um, people in the nutrition space and the fat loss space. And and the uh, what I recognize from very early on that most people need is actually sort of coaching in that aspect, like in a way to think about, you know, when they quote unquote sort of uh, uh, fall off the bandwagon, so to speak, or they deviate from the, the planned meal and they eat pizza or whatever. And then the comments that they make to themselves about themselves afterwards in you know the Facebook group and stuff is just it's clearly evident of how they the thought press process that is going on like oh I can't do anything I'm a loser I'm a fat pig like these are things which people write about themselves and it's almost so I think some people must almost be unconscious to just how this then changes what they do next you know it's almost like default uh, sort of thought patterns that that if you were to say to some people that's actually super unhelpful for you. Like they might not even register just the effect that it is having because it's so ingrained yeah. and it's so deep. Yeah. And a common one that I would think, and it's quite common when I've talked with others, is this thought that I don't deserve to be happy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which, you know, is is untrue. Yeah. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and um, and and I think if it's 
uh, we we have these chats as well is that if that's the way you know if that's the way that you're thinking then this is then changing how you respond and it which is exactly what you say and it changes how you how you then behave you know you sort of like you set yourself up to sort of behave in a certain way you know the way that you're sort of trying to get away from I I think um changing that physical state is interesting and I've heard people talk about that before like the ice pack on on the back of the neck uh this is uh, often people talk about it in that moment of again nutrition related but stress eating like something has happened and the first your first response is to want to pull out the ice cream container or grab that big packet of crisps and instead you change your physical state and that actually can help um almost put the stop button on that behavior yeah definitely and and it's based it's it has physiological basis like it's yeah either on the back of the neck or your forehead like i've tried to like holding an ice pack isn't the same as uh doing it close to your head and it, it actually is calming others can if you don't have an ice pack try and throw cold water on your face yeah 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 jump in a cold lake <laughs> slightly I mean that's slightly less convenient but would, yes, also, yeah. would, would also probably do it now are you a fan of um sauna or cold water therapy as, as part of your own sort of like everyday well-being uh, out of interest it, I wouldn't say it is after I swim I'll go sit in the hot tub nice and and, and relax and do a bit of stretching and uh, I do it because I find it relaxing, and and I also, uh, for me, a lot of times before I would finish my swim and then rush out of there and go to work. So just having that, I think the benefit for me is giving myself permission to slow down. Yeah, and have like after the exercise have five, 10 minutes and before getting on with the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think you're a parent, Scott. Yes. Yeah. Y yeah. I feel parents even more so than probably non-parents and I, I'm, I'm a step parent, so I'm a parent removed if, if you like, but like so much of what you do is not necessarily for yourself you know like you're you're at work as an employee you're um, helping your students then you're at home and you're a dad and you're a husband and you're doing all these things and it's and people forget to take some extra time for themselves to then be able to uh, go into those other situations in, in their best possible way that they can right yeah most definitely and when I was in the treatment facility there's uh maybe around 40 people on average it was a rolling intake and discharge most of the people there uh were people that that you described whether it was at their job or at their households they were ones who were giving so much of themselves to others that they made no space for themselves and then it just became so burdensome for them you know they're not getting uh, their needs met and it doesn't mean them getting their needs met means it overrides somebody else's but 
they haven't had space to to get their needs met and it can create that depressive low self-worth type of mentality Mm. Scott have you had to change anything in everyday life to um help with your mental health like because I mean you already sort of exercised I mean we did just talk about that additional time you spend after exercise but anything else that you yeah that you do now as part of your everyday just um well-being that you might not have done in terms of activities I was more so earlier on than now but I would probably spend about 10 minutes, maybe three to four times a week doing some mindfulness meditation. And I'll turn to that if I'm feeling stressed. And sometimes it's like, oh, I'm stressed. I got to meditate, <laughs> which is, <laughs> is, it's not necessarily because I find it works best when I actually wind down a bit before I, I start yeah. doing that. Uh, but 10, 15 minutes time it takes, I make sure that I have, even if I'm not doing it, have mental breaks throughout the day. Recognizing, because one of the things in this, you touched on it in the book that you mentioned Peter Tia wrote, one of the things I thought when I wasn't feeling happy, I thought is I just have to work more. I just have to be more productive. And it sounds silly now, like nobody felt better by working more. But, that, <laughs> so but that's what I, I thought at the time. And and now I, I have a, a different uh, outlook in that the brain is no the brain's not a muscle, but it's no different than a muscle that if you work it all day, it's just going to collapse. And so I'm, so some of the things that over the past 18 months that I, I'm not sure if it's daily activities, but it's a, a change in outlook that is for, for me is not to. Uh, push so hard, realize that um, you can only do so much in a day and you need to take, it can sound selfish at first, but it's exactly right that you need to take care of yourself, otherwise you're of help to nobody. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting you say that about work because I used to be a lecturer at a couple of different institutes. And the first one that I was at, um, I we were away at a work retreat and I was chatting to a professor and an, and an associate professor. So in New Zealand, it's like lecturer, senior lecturer, then a couple of different grades and then professors, obviously top notch. I don't know how it is in Canada, but um, they, and they were saying that, oh, you know, if you want to be successful in academia, you have to just expect to work nights and weekends. That's just the way it is, you know? And so it's funny, you mentioned earlier on that people assume that being an academic is like this dream life. Um, whereas, but there's real pressure put on academics to continue to be productive and put out works and come up with research studies and do the publications, mentor people through. And I actually, it, it, I, I think it was at that time that I had in my head, 
this isn't going to be a long-term gig for me. I'm not going to be one of these people that are <laughs> yeah. here for 25 years because that is because I just knew in my personality because I already am, I, you know, work is the thing I do until my brain gets too tired to do anymore. You know, it's just the way that some people are wired. And I could see even then that that wasn't going to be a, um, a good long-term uh, sort of thing that I could do, actually. Yeah, and, and I want to... Um kind of not necessarily backtrack but put a caveat into what i'm saying because i don't want to have it come across that this is easy to do and it wasn't easy for me but it was easier because i'm in a position where i have some flexibility i'm working from home if in between meetings i need to go for a walk i go for a walk not everybody is in that position and so there may be stressors whether it's work or you're taking care of small kids where you you can't fit in that time right there and then so other things that uh, uh that probably have seeped into my day-to-day life is in that we were uh in, trained to do is have like some sort of self-care list or toolbox and and there'll be times when I f- feel alone and a lot of times when you feel alone you want to feel alone like it's kind of yeah. and um, but I will try to do um, I will try to do something what's called opposite action and I would text a friend or maybe go out for a walk and be around people and or make uh, even if somebody I can't connect with right away but make a uh, see if I can make a coffee date or a lunch date or a dinner date with with somebody and so it's 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 fighting like it's not that you do stop having that urge because it's probably going to come but seeing what you can do and it's kind of that stress like okay i know i'm going to be stressed by the commute home so what can i do you know one one thing for me i noticed this is very personal like i like listening to music in the car but i would spend so much time going through the different radio stations to find a song i liked and that would actually be stressful for me so i um i just stopped listening to the radio and just listened to music on my phone when i'm like through the car so then i know it's all songs i like if i'm not feeling like that song i can forward it to another one that and and that's made made a big difference yeah uh, and other things like long car rides is you know identifying those triggers is probably and they can be all individual and different but identifying those triggers building that awareness then you can start to look at strategies okay i'm not going to avoid that trigger but how can i minimize that can i you know before i go on that 12-hour car ride family vacation um what's what's the plan um are we gonna how often are we gonna stop uh can i you know 
pack the car, then take a break before getting in the car and driving instead of having it like throw everything in the car um, and then throw everybody in the car and jump in and go. <laughs> Even the way you say that sounds chaotic and oh my goodness. But no, I, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I really liked what you said about the self-care toolbox because I feel like, you know, there are these, you know, people will often read strategies with which they can um, help unwind de-stress both in the moment and also sort of later on. But sometimes they are things which are just completely impossible for that person, like the you know, they literally cannot get out for a 10 minute walk or there's no way that they can go and sit in a sauna. Sorry, I don't have 20 minutes to sit in a sauna or the, you know, access to something like that. But if you're able to write down a whole, like just over, over, collate a list of things as simple as texting a friend to as expensive as going and having a float, I don't know, in one of those float tanks, you know, but they're hopefully in the moment there will actually um, be something that you can do. So it doesn't feel like, well, I can't go and have a float now, so my whole day's ruined. Yeah, so it can be like, so uh, it can be quite simple as you, uh, that depending on the service. So on my list, I've got have a piece of chocolate. Yeah, nice. Right? And it's just others, one though, right? I mean... <laughs> Yes, no, I don't. Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, and um, and but doing something that makes you feel better in in the moment. Um, For others, it could be like thinking of a happy memory um, that gets you through it. Um, Maybe it's chewing some gum or. If you can, um, putting on some music and listening to uh, a song or even one of those like white noise apps where you're listening to the rain or something like that. Yeah. I like the the press-ups and squats as well just for a, a physical, a change in your physical yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those, so that idea of taking that physical break uh, and, and so not me, but exercise scientists have coined it as an exercise snack. Yes. And so you're, so you're snacking activity and the idea, it's only like a minute to two minutes. And some of the, like, this has been ingrained into a lot of creative writers day. So uh, there's some interviews with Dan Brown, who, yeah. And he, he, like I've heard this in multiple interviews, different interviews where he's, he says that he gets, he programs his computer to lock every hour for a couple minutes to force him to stop writing. He says he doesn't leave his office. He just gets down on the floor, does some push-ups and sit-ups. And that little break gives him a boost of creativity to go for the for the next bit. And and other writers would talk about getting outside, going to nature, like getting away from the writing and coming back and and all this jumble in your head all of a sudden starts to fill neatly just by removing yourself from the situation. So 
Yeah, and depending on your situation working, can you do squats or jumping jacks or something like that besides your desk or yeah. Nice, Scott. Um, has this, like, has your experience informed any of your research work, like your in-health behavior? And, and yeah, have you sort of given it, or is that just one step too far and actually no? Um, no, I would say so. Like, even with my blog uh, writing, you could probably see a trend, not that I'm suggesting anybody go back and read six years of my blog writing, but you can see a trend that as I started to not feel so great, started feeling worse, My what I was writing about, I was writing more about mental health, writing more about exercise and mental health. I was looking into that. And it's it has had some uh, effect like uh, not so much like physical activity and and mental health like i'm definitely reading more in that area but my day-to-day research there i've had a shift in interest from the physical benefits of activity which i'm still interested in to looking at like the mental, the cognitive types, like even that, you know, taking that physical activity break can help you be more productive in what you're doing, can enhance creativity, can it prevent cognitive decline and uh, dementia later in, in life. And so there's interest in looking at some of those aspects. And is it something i'm interested in is is there a difference between going for your run on your regular running route which you could probably think about other things while doing that and it's it's great activity as opposed to let's say going playing tennis or going playing basketball where it's physically demanding but also has a mental demand as well that's different from running your regular running route around your neighborhood just like if sitting can be detrimental but does sitting writing writing something what doing some creative writing or research writing or writing a report is that different than let's say sitting as a clerk in a grocery store or sitting as a parking attendant in a parkade where both people are sitting but the mental load or the mental challenge is different yeah yeah, for sure. Um, and, and when you say that, I'm thinking back to there's a show, Better Call Saul, and there was the parking attendant, which wasn't really a parking attendant, was he? He was more of a, you know, I worked for the mafia. Um, but he would do crosswords. <laughs> you know, that was a good way to yeah. uh, keep his brain active. Um, Scott, do you know, I had, as you said in your email to me, Mickey, we've only got an hour. This is quite a long list. Uh, <laughs> we've managed to sort of chat about one one's topic and haven't even really moved on to the research stuff which you which which I'm really also interested to chat to you about so hopefully we can save that for another time um can you give us a uh tell 
listeners where they can find your writing and of course your podcast as well so you're very prolific on with the airways and writing as well it's super impressive can you get just tell people where oh, they can thanks. find you yeah certainly so my blog is drscottlear.com and then i co-host a podcast with a former undergraduate student who is in my second year course who approached me on it's called how to health and that's available spotify apple google platforms and uh i'm also you know varying levels of activeness on twitter instagram I have a TikTok account and it's all oh. at Dr. Yeah, it's, I don't do funny TikToks. So, so <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not, da- I'm not dancing or anything. Uh, and they're all at Dr. Scott Lear. Yeah. That is awesome, Scott. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me about this. I, I find it, it's really valuable, I think, for people to hear personal stories and, and how people have sort of um, the tools and strategies that people have used to help overcome that sort of aspect. But also just, um, I think because you're so open about it, um, I think that's really super helpful as well. So we will pop links to your channels, including TikTok in the show notes and hopefully it's fine for me to touch base and we can chat about your research on another occasion oh certainly and thanks so much mickey for giving me the the space and opportunity to to share as well you know it's uh it can be as i said when also you, you share things like it's not always easy and there are different barriers and challenges but most times when people do share what's really going on inside they feel better afterwards yeah no i i agree so thank you so much scott okay thanks a lot All right, team, hopefully you enjoyed that. And in fact, I had a number of topics I wanted to talk to Scott about, but we didn't really get past this first one because uh, that's what happens. Time flies when you have a conversation like that. So I'm really hoping to get him on to chat more about his research in the heart health and his own personal sort of uh, journey there. Uh, Next week on the podcast, I have returning fan favourite, Dr. Dan Plews, and we talk about his training, we talk about Chelsea Sodaro's training, and what Dan's interested in right now. So be sure to tune in next week. But until then, though, you can catch me over on Instagram, Thread, and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, or head to my website, MickeyWillardin.com, book a one on one call with me. All right, team, you have a fantastic week. See you later.